0: If you don't know who that was, and if you don't know what song she was singing, then, then I don't know what to tell you. Welcome to History and Systems Lecture 11 on Feminist Psychotherapy. Some of you might be wondering why we are doing um, a lecture, two-part lecture on women in psychology. One has to do with history, um, but then feminist psychotherapy. Let me, let me tell you why we are taking special time out to focus on that there's the the inequality part of course that that's that's easily number one on the list that you've got half the population um that have been excluded from thinking about psychology practicing psychology researching psychology etc there's that part and so obviously there's an oppression issue. There's an equality issue. But there's, there's another piece that's definitely related, um, but it's understanding feminism and feminist psychotherapy as a movement, a cultural movement in the West that really changes the way we think uh, about psychotherapy in particular. It changes the way we definitely we think about human psychology and gender So, I don't, I don't, this is not just saying, hey, women haven't gotten their attention, so let's give it to them now. That's part of it for sure. But it's actually understanding that that feminism, feminist psychology, feminist psychotherapy has this massive impact on the field and really changes the way that we work, changes the way that we think. When I matriculated to Fuller's School of Psychology in the fall of 1993, The program was easily two thirds men. Now, and it changed over the years, and to now where it's it's easily the vast majority of our students are women. So, when we talk about women in the history of psychology, when we talk about feminism, we're not just saying, "Hey, let's let's look at what women did," though that would be certainly honorable and worthy in and of itself. We have to seriously consider the fact that feminism changed things, and so let's talk about that. Eleanor Maccabee is not classically, traditionally considered a feminist psychotherapist, but in terms of feminism in the field of psychology, she certainly lays some groundwork. She earned her Ph.D. from the University of Michigan in 1950. Again, very, very unusual. You need to, you need to have a visual of a graduating class with one female in it. I know no, I'm not certain of that, but there were probably no more than two. She gets a job at Harvard um, working with Robert Sears on developmental child psychology. She, she um, actually ends up working with Skinner uh, a bit on a behaviorist approach to learning theory that was really influential. Um, but then eventually she moves on to, to, to a more cognitive psychology development approach. Uh, she becomes a professor at Stanford in 1958, and again, this is something that's that's it's not it's not unheard of, but it's certainly uncommon. And I just also want you to imagine being the only woman or one of a few women in um, an Ivy League department. Um, the treatment was probably not great, and this is so. Just keep those kind of things in mind as we're talking about all these women. It's. Not just that they accomplish great things, it's that they have to deal with more stress and oppression and suffer more than men do while they're accomplishing these things. Which brings us to career and motherhood for Eleanor McAbee. Um, She only worked part-time after adopting her second child. This is a very common thing you see in, in any field of work with women, if it's possible for them. And she basically gives up research and publishing while her kids are young. And when she begins again, she's, she's burning the candle at both ends to try and fulfill the, the roles of mother and See and, and again, today, there's this, un, there's this concept of a working mom, a cultural concept of a working mom. Um, back then, really, there's just a cultural concept of a mom. And so it's, yeah, I, I think you see where I'm going with that. In 1951, she conducts some of the first studies in the impact of TV violence on children with this, this new-fangled invention called television. Um, she writes a lot about parenting and, and she ends up doing some work on um, the, the effects of divorce on children and adolescents. Um, then she starts looking at sex differences in, in intellectual functioning in 1966. Um, and she does see that intellectual tasks, the differences, as biological. Now, this is, she wasn't wrong, but she wasn't completely right. And this is one of, also one of the reasons that most feminism, most feminist psychology, definitely leans towards the social construction side. But we're going to come back to this point. In 1974, she co-wrote The Psychology of Sex Differences with Carol Jacqueline, And in it, then she discusses gender roles as a combination of biological and social forces. And she specifically looks at the beliefs about the abilities of boys and girls. And, for example, the belief that, that girls have better verbal skills, boys have better spatial abilities boys are more aggressive boys are better at math and she found these ideas about difference now and they're not the differences themselves stay with me the ideas about difference to be fairly consistent so in other words people tend to believe these things overall um, and the book was praised for its ideas but it <coughs> criticized for its conclusions that biology is central and again this is a this is a theme that's very big in in gender studies. It's very big in feminism. Very big in psychology. It's it's really nature versus nurture, and it's always part of the discussion. In 1981, she launches a longitudinal investigation of gender differences in children during their first six years, and looks at, like as I said, she looks at families going through divorce, and basically looking at gender differences and trying to understand them. In terms of her professional accomplishments, in addition to the publications that we discussed, she was, in 1971, she was president of APA's Division of Developmental Psychology, first woman chair at Stanford's Department of Psychology, and some other honoraries that you can take a look at in the notes. I'm not going to test you um, on any of them. Her career spans 50 years, and she pu- publishes eight books and over 100 chapters and papers. And we really wouldn't understand children's socialization, development, and differences in gender as well as we do without her. She's, like I said, she's not really considered a, a classic feminist psychologist, but she definitely laid some groundwork. Before we talk about feminist psychotherapy, we need to talk a little bit about feminism to, to set it up. You know, as we've seen repeatedly uh, in the history of psychology, women have faced a lot of difficulties, or they're just outright pathologized, considered mentally, physically weaker, uh, and so forth. But the 1960s brings in a time where the dominant cultural values are going to be challenged. So defining feminism is difficult, it really depends on who you talk to. Um, and and how they're thinking about it, but we're going to give it a shot. So, loosely, feminism is a movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation, and oppression. It's intended to empower all people, including men, and it's a point that I think is often forgotten, to promote equality at all levels, experience, individual, relational, institutional, national, uh, and global. So feminism is generally broken up into is described historically in and culturally and ideologically in three waves. First wave feminism beginning in the late nineteenth century through the early twentieth century, it focuses on fundamental political inequalities. This is this is sort of the basics. This is this is feminism basic. Um, it's rights to education, rights to vote, rights to have a job, um, a right to get divorced, that kind of thing. So first wave feminism is just like, yeah, can we just be treated the same um, <laughs> in a legal sense? And even then, you only get partway there. Second fem- wave feminism corrects some of this. In the, the late 1960s, you really see this surge in feminist activism yeah, the beginning of the women's liberation movements, equal amendments, right, and and this really rises out of the civil right right, excuse me, the civil rights movement, um, and the anti-war movement, and it focuses not just on the basic legal rights, but on social and cultural inequalities. So it focuses on things like reproductive rights, looks more at gender roles and criticizing the male experience as normative, something that's been a huge problem in the history of psychology, um, takes aim at gendered language and raises awareness of sexual exploitation of women um, and calling for greater, greater legal protection and takes on discrimination in the workplace and in education, which was sorely, sorely needed. Second wave feminism, really highlights the fact that women's issues need to be included in the discussion, not neglected. The big, the big saying, I don't know if they would call it a motto or not in second wave feminism is the personal is political. So one of the ways that you get around um, somebody who's oppressed complaining about their, their lack of equal rights is you try to make this distinction between the personal and the political or the personal and professional. Second wave feminism is saying that the personal is professional for for women a lot. There are parts of a woman's experience that works both directions. Their their personal lives affects their political reality, and the political reality affects their personal lives, because patriarchy invades all elements of of life. You know, intrapersonal, interpersonal, institutional, political, educational, professional, etc. And there are these implicit values in you know in academia and in society that that have to change. Um, a good example from psychology is Carol Gilligan. Now I'm getting a little ahead of myself and talking about Gilligan just in terms of of the timeline and conceptually but you guys are smart and you'll be able to keep up. I haven't talked about Kohlberg yet. Um I'm going to talk about Kohlberg uh, a little later. Um and so Carol, a lot of her work is in reaction to to his but you can keep up just fine. So Gilligan critiques the standards of moral competence in Kohlberg's stages of moral development as masculine rather than universal. And now as I'm talking about this, I really, really need you to go for Kohlberg's stages first. I'll come back to this point. It's actually in your notes for Kohlberg's lecture, so we will, we'll, we'll come back to it. But just for now, um, having an understanding that there's, there's this masculine conception of a problem um, that it has to be solved in sort of this most efficient or logical way. So there, there's kind of this, this heuristic, if you will, of going for the greater good um, in, in moral development. One of the problems that, that Gilligan cites in this is that There's a difference between being guided by abstract moral principles and real demands for justice, um, whether it's personal, individual, or or collective. Gilligan points out that women tend to be more relational and more contextual, balancing care and responsibility for others. So Gilligan observed that the majority of women prefer to discuss concrete situations and emphasize caring for others, here and now, immediate. Real world where men will do things like come up with these <laughs> highly implausible scenarios, <laughs> like being in a lifeboat with a few, you know, a handful of different people, um, or having, you know, um, a, a medication only one pharmacist has it, and it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Men came up with these these really far fetched situations to t- test moral judgment, um, where women are like, okay, is you know, is, is the baby okay, are we okay kind of questions. Um, and so she criticizes Kohlberg's moral model um, as, as looking at the male ideal uh, of what, sorry, I'm having a hard time talking today, um, of, of what morality is. So following second wave feminism, we have, of course, third wave feminism. It begins in the early 1990s, and it responds to what it perceives as the failures of second, first and second wave feminism um, and even a, as a backlash to second wave feminism because there are these essentialist views of, of femininity. Um, first and second wave feminism still lean toward an essentialist view of gender, which I'll talk more about in a second. And... Also, there was this, this very, very important criticism of first and second wave feminism that, that really the, the views overemphasize the experience of upper middle class white women. And I can't I can't understate the, the importance of this distinction. Um, because if you're and this this happens, this is not just in feminism, this happens all over psychology and all over the place that. When we do, and this happens frequently, when we're talking about minorities, oppressed classes, when we start talking about their experience, we tend to start with people that are higher in SES. In other words, people who tend to be educated or around educated people, people who are around universities, professionals, that kind of thing. And so, it complete. So, sec- first and second wave feminism really don't recognize diversity in a way that makes the feminism truly effective for all women, all people. So in addition to gender, you have to realize that, that ethnicity, culture, religion, and sexual orientation, all these things are central, and there is, and, and this is one of big, third wave feminism's biggest contributions, is that there's no single all-encompassing ideal. Third wave feminism is very much a child of postmodernism, and, and I, I, mean, <laughs> I mean that in a good way, for sure. Um, because it basically says, you know, that we can't assume that there's just one female experience. Um, that that we have to understand that based on all of these other factors, there are a range uh, of experiences that women have. So, as I alluded to before, there are very broadly speaking two approaches to gender, uh, and this might come up a- at some point later on an exam. So. Two approaches uh, to gender. One is essentialist, and this says that women are different than men at a biological level. Uh, And the problem is that culture esteems a male perspective over female. The other approach is social constructivist, and this says men and women are socialized differently. Society shapes the feminine aspects of women, but the differences are not essential. So a a simple way to think this is nature and nurture right um we could talk about current thinking on this forever most of the stuff that i i read in in the sexuality literature um really emphasizes the fact that that it's both that it's actually considered kind of naive now just to take an essentialist or just to take a socialist social constructivist approach. Now, I want to be very clear about this because this often gets oversimplified and misunderstood when I say it. I'm not saying it's 50% essentialist and 50% constructivist and they have an equal force. I'm not saying that even a little bit. Um, I'm just saying there's that most most of the science, most of the literature out there agrees that that these are two forces that that interact. Um, now, how much of the variability is on an, each side... If that can even be answered, it's going to be different for everyone. So I just want to be, be clear about that when I'm kind of talking about the, the current state of the field. Um, but with what we're talking about, the time period we're talking about now, the essentialist perspective had absolutely been dominant. And so you get this, this very needed construct, uh, Excuse me, very needed correction of the social constructivist perspective. So this brings us to feminist psychotherapy. It's initially developed to correct for sexism and bias in psychological theory, diagnosis, and practice, and provide women with gender-aware and sensitive mental health services. Feminist therapy, is, and I think most feminist therapists would agree with me on this, that it's not considered sort of um, a standalone therapeutic orientation. And there's there is this intersection interaction of the therapist' feminist orientation, if you will, and their therapeutic orientation, and so there are. And that's that's just another way of saying you can be CBT, you can be psychoanalytic, etc., humanistic, um, and and still integrate a, a feminist therapy the perspective to, to your work. And we'll talk more about how that how that looks, how that works. So. There are a lot of variations of feminist psychotherapy, but there are six fundamental tenets. One, all relationships should be equal, egalitarian relationships. Um, looking at issues of power, uh, enhancement of the woman's strengths having a non-pathology oriented framework and non-victim blaming. This is crucial. And when I say non-pathology oriented framework, it doesn't mean if if someone has schizophrenia, we're not going to say, hey, you have schizophrenia, we need to treat it. It means it's not going to pathologize things that are fundamentally female. And I'm going to actually, I'm going to go off the notes for a second and and talk just a little bit about this. In the late 90s, I did some research that was published in the Journal of Women's Health and the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology on a disorder called hyperemesis gravidarum. It is severe and protracted morning sickness during pregnancy. The diagnostic criterion is essentially that the woman has to be hospitalized to be hydrated and nourished because she's vomiting so much. The research up to this point all but blamed it completely on the woman um, there was a little bit of research in the area of hormones which was something that we were looking at but mostly it fell into one or two areas um, malingering um, basically the woman was puking for secondary gain so I hope the secondary gain was worth it if that's the case um, or it's basically psychosomatic or conversion disorder. Um, there's, there's a really fun psychoanalytic conceptualization of it that, that, um, that I won't get into the whole thing, but basically the woman is unconsciously trying to vomit out her baby. So I think even Sigmund Freud cringed when he heard that one. So it's this incredibly sexist approach to a disorder that we found out is almost certainly related to hormone sensitivity and has got nothing to do with anything truly psychological in terms of its etiology. So one of the things that feminist therapy always has to fight is the pathology, the the <laughs> excuse me, um, pathologizing women, and 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 not just pathologizing women, but pathologizing things that are essentially and fundamentally female. This is even where we get the word hysterical. Uh, and this is a big part of, of my research, was actually looking at this hysteria diagnosis um, that, that is very sexist. It's I mean, it's even rooted, that the Greeks thought that hysteria r- resulted when the uterus would, would wander around the body. Siri, I'm not talking to you. Hysteria does not sound like Siri. Um, yeah, and wander around the body, and that's why women would, would get these extreme psychological symptoms. In medicine, it is much more common to see a psychosomatic or conversion disorder diagnosis and a malingering di- diagnosis for women than men, just by far, by far, by far. And so there's constantly this framework that that feminism has to push against all the time that tends to pathologize women more. Feminist therapy also emphasizes education and acceptance and validation of feelings of the woman's experience. A feminist therapy approach to understanding problems really does pivot back to this idea that the personal is political. Uh, The quote I've got here from N's, 2004, personal problems are often connected to or influenced by the political and social climate in which people live, and so understanding context, at, context, excuse me, at multiple levels is really crucial in understanding someone's experience. In a medical model, problems and diagnoses are, are basically decontextualized and actually can provo- promote victim blaming. And so as you continue your career, I would really encourage you not to adopt that approach to, to understanding your clients. You know, sure, we're gonna give them diagnoses and that kind of thing, but always remembering the, the context. There's so many times where I, I remember throughout my career, before <laughs> I learned to, to look at somebody's context early on, um, man, I would be, I'd be jumping around, thinking all these, of these diagnoses. And then when I started listening more for con- context, life stressors, paying attention to that stuff, exploring it, then it'd be like, okay, no kidding, you're anxious right now. I think anybody would be with the amount of stress you have. And, and that's something that, that feminist therapy does a great job at, at highlighting. So next I'm going to talk a little bit about third-wave feminist psychologist hero Laura Brown. Let's we'll start with a, a quote from her seminal work, Subversive Dialogues. She says, For social constructivist radical feminists, differences between women and men, while meaningful within a particular social and interpersonal context, are simply artifacts of that context built by the social discourse, as it were, rather than essential to and inherent in being female or male. For Laura Brown, feminist therapy is about subverting patriarchy and the damage that it does to to people's lives. She says the first and most important, quote, client of feminist therapy is the culture in which it takes place. The first and foremost commitment of feminist therapists is to radical social transformation. So in feminist therapy. According to Brown, the purpose of therapy is empowerment of the client for social change, not necessarily eliminating distress. This is this is a radical difference. A client experiencing greater awareness and distress over destructive social realities is a positive therapeutic outcome, even if they might not necessarily feel better. Um, and so, post therapy, a client's world can look different, and not just in the way it actually looks when they look at their world, but but actually the way they see the world so this is important feminist therapy actually has something kind of akin to existentialist therapy in, in this regard um you know the, they're basically saying no we're not we're not just going to teach you coping strategies for all this oppressive crap that's going on around you we're going to make you aware of it and we're going to teach you how to fight it fight it and that might not make you feel good all the time and uh, but otherwise Brown says that, that therapy can actually contribute to the ills of society. You know, feminist therapy requires constant awareness on the part of the therapist that the relationship with the client occurs within the social and political framework. And so therapy seeks to uncover or make explicit the ways in which this context shapes meaning even in the therapy room. Therapy should actually promote resistance or refusal to merge with dominant cultural norms and to attend to one's own voice and integrity. Uh, i wish we were in class today to talk more uh, about this because i've got stories i'm sure you all have stories about where you can actually see examples of patriarchy in the the therapy room and whether they're in these kind of micro expressive ways or even the structure of therapy and and all kinds of things and one thing that would be fun to talk about is that that yeah and i'd like to hear your all's experiences sometimes it's hard to confront these things with clients because they've internalized the value so much um, that they're not really willing or interested in in having a serious conversation about it. But that's that's another conversation for another time that hopefully we get to have. I don't know if feminism is going through a new wave yet, but it feels like it. Maybe this is like wave three point five because now. Feminism, feminist therapy is taking diversity much more seriously and understanding that the feminist movements we have really do reflect the experiences of white upper class, middle, upper middle class women. I remember that I was at a a conference once talking to somebody's, talking to somebody about, about their research, um, about, um, polyamorous relationships and, one of the things they came up with was a surprising lack of anything that looked like misogyny or, or anything like that. And then I asked about their sample, and yes, lo and behold, it was, it was mostly white women, middle class, uh, white people, middle class and above. And so it's, it's crucial to understand that, and it's, it's sadly ironic, um, that there are implicit values, even in feminism, uh, that can be discriminatory feminist therapy has had a problem with neglecting women of color, older women, non-north american women, um, women with disabilities and lower ses women. you know there are women that have been working you know, you know there are classes of women that have been doing some kind of labor you know, whether it was a, like not just just in the home but doing extra to to make ends meet for years and years even if they weren't officially employed that kind of thing. so when you're talking about the history of work and women you have to know who you're talking about so to work toward a truly multicultural feminist therapy approach uh, theory building has to be done by a diverse body of researchers and theorists not just diverse research and theory but diverse researchers and diverse theorists um, and white therapists need to do a better job of identifying their often unspoken privilege And you have to, and and I guess there's a lot that that connects um, feminist therapy to to humanism, to existentialism, and that it's kind of phenomenological, especially third-wave feminism. Say, what is this person's lived experience? And you can't, also can't assume that it's the primary lens um, for for everyone's experience, things like sexual orientation, ethnicity, class. Um, I would also add religion, I, I think, is an important one. Uh, can be more salient of elements of of one's identity. Um, And so understanding that, and again, taking a phenomenological approach and understanding what is this person's perspective based on their lived experience. This is LaTee Gray's Feminist Anthem Hot Topic. Thanks again for your kind attention.